Would you open your Bibles with me to Matthew 24 in the New Testament? Matthew 24. We'll begin our reading at verse 1. We're going to read up to verse 28. Matthew 24, verse 1, it says, Jesus left the temple... And was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one uh, stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if, you say, if, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of Lord Jesus Christ, we're working our way into what is called by some the Olivet Discourse, starting in Matthew 24, uh, the next major section of Matthew. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, as we read, sitting on the, the mountainside, the side of the Mount of Olives, looking across the valley at Jerusalem. And they have asked him about the close of the age and the last days which we identify as the time between Jesus and his first coming and the time of his glorious return, his second coming. 
and, uh, and that with, with judgment for the world. And we are living in those days, the last days. And the occasion for their question was him revealing to the disciples that all the buildings they could see, the impressive structures of the temple, would all be torn down. They would all be destroyed. And the disciples identified the destruction of Jerusalem as an indication that the end is near, that the end of all things is near. Uh, so Jesus uh, went further and identified several tumultuous signs that point to the close of the age in broad terms, which were delivered in a way that helps the believer focus and forewarns and provides that, that the believer would have undue alarm at these birth pains that are shown in the world leading up to the end, that is, to the return of Jesus in his glory as the Messiah. Now, Jesus goes on in verses 15 and following, which is our focus today, he goes on with more teaching that characterizes the last days. In the close of the age, the elect should be prepared for the destruction of the temple in the near term, as well as a time of great tribulation before the incredible, the shining arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. So that's how we summarize verses 15 to 28. In the close of the age, the elect should be prepared for the destruction of the temple in the near term, as well as for a great tribulation before the shining arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. So this first section has to do with that destruction and desolation and the great tribulation. In verses 15 and following, Jesus describes primarily events that are connected to the destruction of the temple and beyond. And he speaks of the abomination of desolation. He's quoting the book of Daniel in his you know, prophetic visions, Daniel 9, 27. And he's also... Uh, teaching in a way that's closely related to 2 Thessalonians 2. This section seems to include references that press very heavily on the, uh, the imagery of Jerusalem's destruction and the distress that comes from it, which we said last week is about four decades from now. Jesus is crucified in approximately 33 AD, and the temple and the whole city of Jerusalem is destroyed in approximately A.D. 70. So about 40 years later, and this time is going to arrive. Um, but there's also uh, an event described in 2 Thessalonians, which appears to be future, much uh, uh, different or still further than the destruction of the temple. That is an event where an Antichrist figure described in 2 Thessalonians 2, a man of lawlessness, a son of destruction, he's called, proclaims himself to be God against any other God, including the true God. Second Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4 says this, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, that is the end, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And this, this is part of this reference, the abomination of desolation 
in the holy place that's described here in Matthew 24. So the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple serves as an example of horrific tribulation. And yet there appears to be still a future great tribulation that will bring unprecedented trouble and distress. So you have sort of, you know, striking of the same tones. You have the destruction of Jerusalem, but you also have you also have the description of events that seem yet to be coming in the verses preceding and the verses after. And so uh, we have sort of, you know, connected ideas. This destruction is a precursor uh, and is a taste of the kind of tribulations that are going to define this time between Jesus' first and second coming. Historically, the siege and destruction of Jerusalem was terrible, an awful trial. And Jesus' warning speaks about the hardships of those who have to flee suddenly to the mountains under those circumstances without time to go into the house and get even basic necessities or to come back from the field, as it were, and get uh, just the most you know, minimal things that are needed. He mournfully describes the hardships at that time that would fall upon the weakest and most exposed pregnant, and, uh, pregnant women and nursing infants. Um, but verses 21 and 22 of chapter 24, they seem to point forward. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And it says uh, in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Some, some even more dramatic event than just the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, wide in scope that sort of threatens the whole world under this heavy weight of trouble. And the difficulty described in those verses seems to excel in size and in magnitude, the destruction of that single city, Jerusalem, even threatening wrath from God to the point of total destruction that would, apart from God's mercy, consume even believers, consume even the elect. And the time leading up to Jesus' return then is, is full of intensity. Uh, so we're, we're wrestling with that, with that language, we're wrestling with the the greatness of those ideas. But in verse 22, Jesus makes this statement of great intensity and of great comfort concerning God's mercy toward the elect in the midst of this tribulation. In the last days, there would be such trouble and distress in the world that Jesus says, even the elect would be threatened. Even they would would fall apart if it kept up, but God in his mercy towards the elect and for their sake, God will mercifully cut that time short. And so the question, right, is, well, what does that mean? And who and, you know, what or who is the better question? You know, who are the elect? Well, according to Ephesians one, right, the elect are those chosen by God. That's what eclectos means in the Greek. It's chosen, a chosen people. Um, the elect are those chosen by God before the foundation of the world for salvation in Christ. They're the recipients of this deep and gracious love of God 
And they're chosen by him to receive that love and that salvation in Christ. And the testimony in Ephesians 1 is that God loves us so deeply that he knew us in love with with all of his goodness and his love. He knew us before the foundation of the world. Before we knew him, he knew us. And he was aware of us, not for our harm, but for our good. And even though we were undeserving, he graciously predestined the elect, that is the chosen, right, for life in Christ. And that's an important biblical teaching that many churches today, Arminian churches, Baptistic and Charismatic churches, they deny. Uh, They believe that we must be the ones who choose God for various reasons. It seems good in their eyes not uh, not to teach this teaching of a chosen people. Uh, and for various reasons, they, they suppress or deny uh, that teaching. Um, they believe that we must be the ones that make this choice to choose God. But what do they do with the teaching like this in Matthew 24? And what will they do with Ephesians 1? And what will they do with Romans 8, which we'll read in just a moment? Um, it's typical of many churches, especially on this island, many Baptistic and Charismatic churches, they teach about the end times with a heightened sense of fear, with a heightened sense of anxiety, with a heightened sense of uncertainty. And I've seen many Christians deeply concerned and unnecessarily troubled with fear and anxiety over issues related to the end times. That is, they need to identify the man of lawlessness, the abomination of desolation. They need to positively identify it or they're going to be caught, as it were, uh, maybe by surprise. Or they are afraid about missing a, so, you know, a so-called rapture, um, where they'll be swept away with God, and they have deep anxieties about these things. You know, I need to know who, is, who and what is the Antichrist, and they're always looking to pin that on something or someone. Most recently, as recently as this week, someone was explaining to me why it's the president of the Ukraine. And I'm... I'm uh, but, but, but a year ago, they were telling me it was something else and something else and something else going back and back. Um, but the point is, there's this heightened sense of uncertainty and there's fear. I'm going to miss the rapture. I'm going to be I, I'm going to miss these events or flat out. I'm going to miss the coming of Jesus or he, maybe he's already came and I missed it. And there's fear that is unwanted, unnecessary and not taught. In this passage, Um, but this passage helps significantly with comfort in the face of trouble, of tribulation, of distress. Romans 8 famously teaches that the elect are those whom God predestined. That is, he, he chose and he determined that they should be called. And not just called, but justified. And not just justified, but you know, further sanctified and glorified. They, in other words, they will reach glory. And what he has begun with his predestination, he will finish and bring all the way to completion. That is, to glory. Um, the teaching of Romans 8 is for supreme confidence. Supreme assurance that the Christian will never be forsaken by God. The elect, the the believer, will never be just sort of brushed aside by him or forgotten by him or lost by him. 
Nothing will separate us from his love. That's the, that's the deep comfort of Romans 8. And it is an electing comfort. It is, it is tied to predestination. It says in that passage, we're more than conquerors through this, this unbreakable you know, love of God in Jesus Christ. And now that's important to know and believe. Our confidence in God's unbreakable love sits on the foundation of his predestination, that is, of his election of a people, choosing of a people. And without it, we cannot have an unshakable confidence in the face of earth-shaking events. It's a very unbiblical and sad side effect that churches which deny God's election, they lack confidence in their teaching about assurance of salvation in the face of great tribulation. They teach that one can lose their salvation. They lack certainty. And it creates fear when we're approaching a chapter like Matthew 24, when we're talking about the last days and people are biting their fingernails and asking like, am I going to survive this? Am I going to make it? And do I have enough food in my basement? Or what, you know, as we, there's, they're asking questions that demonstrate they have not understood the teaching of election. And in so doing, they have, they have drained away their comfort. The teaching of election tells us that God so loves us that he would never allow us to fall away. That he would never let the rising tide of trouble in the world overtake his elect. And he would never let it finally consume them and destroy them. But his steadfast love and his victory in Christ assures us that we will persevere all the way to glory in him. So the believers in Christ, these are the elect. And God loves them deeply from eternity. and He will never leave them or forsake them. And that knowledge is very important as we consider the teaching about incredibly difficult tribulations in the last days. If it weren't for God's election, we would be lost. We would be threatened. If it weren't for God's care and direct mercy towards the elect, we might not endure to the end. That's the teaching of Jesus. But he teaches that God's kindness for their sake is given out, is poured out. And he cuts off their distress to preserve their, their souls, to preserve their salvation. As though they were what we know Jesus teaches us to be. God's lambs that he cares for, God's little children that he provides for, and the one who threatens them, he would drown with a millstone around their neck, and the one who would devour them, he, you know, he protects uh, from, from the wolf, or he protects as the shepherd. This is God's care toward his lambs, and that means he will limit the days of great tribulation so that they will endure. The teaching of election has direct bearing on the last days and our ability to endure those days. The comfort of election is not some secret fad of the reformed. It's a necessity of the scripture. Necessity for enduring to the end. That is to the day of Christ and his coming. And it is the teaching of Jesus, not an invention and not hidden in the scripture. How can we endure in times of great spiritual trial and hardship? 
unless we believe and stand on the foundation that God has chosen us as recipients of his unbreakable, steadfast, and enduring love. How can we endure while the whole world seems to plunge into sin, plunge into destruction and trouble, while conflict rages and famine and trials and difficulties of all kinds come? How can we endure in the truth unless we are sure that God is committed to showing us mercy and kindness, to protecting us and being the shield he promised to be. We need that comfort. And it is upheld by way of the teaching of God's election. Regarding the assurance of election, our standards, the Canons of Dort summarizes, it says, in their awareness and assurance of this election, God's children daily find greater cause to humble themselves before God and to adore the fathomless depths of his mercies. That's very true. That's very helpful. What does it do for us? Does it make us feel special? You know, we've got the, we've got the secret trick, you know, to, to the end times. That's not what this is for. It increases humility. It increases trust, not in ourselves, but in God. We humble ourselves before him and say, if it wasn't for him and his mercy, I could never endure. And we stand in awe of him. We adore him because when we need him most, God doesn't turn his back. He's willing to pour out still more mercy. How true in Matthew 24 are we aware of God's powerful care for the elect in the midst of earth-shattering events? That God is thinking of us and, and he's thinking of the good of his people as he brings all creation to the desired end point, you know, to the day of Christ's reve- uh, you know, revealed power and glory in his return. He loves us. And that's both humbling and the daily cause for repeating in our minds the remembrance of his kindnesses to us. So in no small way, believers must be aware that false teachers will arise, perhaps even performing signs and wonders, whether by deception or by demonic power. Jesus wants us to know that there will be false Christs and false teachers you know, proclaiming to be something that they're not. He wants us to know beforehand, he said. And if someone suggests that Jesus has already returned, we shouldn't listen to it. If someone suggests that Jesus is out in some wilderness place, we shouldn't go. If someone suggests he's in some hidden room, we shouldn't believe it. But many Christians, uh, you know, in our time are taken by false teaching that manipulates I have a new revelation, you know, from God. And, it's, and this is how things are going to go. I have a new word from God, they say. And, you know, it's going to be on such and such a day at such and such a time. Come with me. Don't, we don't join them. And we don't believe their new revelations. We don't believe their, their new visions and their new dreams and their new, you know, words from God that they claim to have. I have special knowledge that Jesus is here or there. That's our response. Not interested. You know, door politely closed 
as it were. I, I'm not interested in hearing. I have insight and I've cracked open mysteries that no one else knows, but I've got the revelation from God. And I can say that Jesus has already come. No thanks, not interested. You know, I'll lead you by some new system, some numerical code, or, uh, you know, some serious biblical acrobatics where I, you know, I'm, I'm seeing connections in the Bible that no one else can see. And, you know, and it's all by the code, you know, whatever it is uh, that they're proposing. Um, adding to God's word new revelations, new words, new prophecies, innovations in the Bible, they are to be rejected. They are to be uh, rejected as deception. They're to be rejected uh, as, as unwanted. Jesus says plainly for our good that his coming will be very great. It will be, it will be obvious in the way that lightning crosses the entire sky in a way that just makes you go like, this is amazing. Like, I, just, I, I stand in awe. And, and if you've ever watched a lightning storm light up the night sky so that for, for a moment it's like it's daytime again. This is incredible. It you know, crosses the whole sky. There's something so powerful and so amazing about it. And Jesus says, this is what it will be like the day that I return. No one will miss it. No one could miss it. No one, no one needs to figure it out. No one needs to sort of unlock some incredible puzzle. It, when it comes, it comes. And it, it's, it will be plain, so plain. And in that way, we're, we, we are freed from anxiety. Did I, did I miss it? Will I miss it? Could I miss it? No. When he comes, you will know it. I will know it. We will know it. By comparison, right, when someone claims to be Christ and they're drawing attention to themselves, you know, it's like, you know, they struck a match. You know, there it is compared to the lightning that lights up the sky. Don't we're not chasing that person out into the middle of nowhere when they claim, oh, here's Jesus in some hidden place. You know, he's in the inner room. It's like, you know, that's like a woman telling you, I've got I've got a full size walrus here in my little handbag. It's this is, this is deception. This is nothing. You can't possibly have in your little wallet, you know, this massive creature. Not a chance. The second coming of Jesus is an incredible event, one that cannot be missed. 1 Thessalonians 4 says about his coming. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We, we should be encouraged at his coming. And we stand in awe of him. In that way, we, we fear his coming. That is with reverence, with awe, with his majesty. But we don't, we're not in terror of his coming. We're his people. And those who are in the Lord encourage each other that he's coming and soon. They don't encourage each other to, you know, fill up their gas reserves and get extra, you know, clothes and a, you know, a tent in the wilderness just in case. 
That's not the encouragements we're interested in. We are interested in the spiritual encouragement that says, we're going to meet him in the air with the dead who have risen in him. And that's, those are two different mentalities. The obviousness of Jesus' return is, is a comfort to me. When the end comes, it comes plainly. When Jesus returns, he returns. And Jesus gives one more image other than lightning, right? He gives, um, he gives the image of the vultures gathering to a corpse. High in the sky, the vultures would circle over a corpse. You can't miss it. It's like a, a massive sort of uh, sign, you know, taller than the massive signs next to the highway. Like, look, there's a body here. Look at how obvious it is with the, vul- the vultures are circling. This is, this is another, uh, you know, sort of, it's so big, it's so obvious, it could only mean one thing. That's the way that, that uh, Jesus gives this imagery of, of the vultures gathering to a corpse. You know, in this particular section of Matthew, believers would again, they would find help, not fear, they would, find, they would find comfort, not terror. The, the, the Christian would find uh, an anchor and a foundation, not distress. As Jesus teaches and delivers these teachings, we would be warned in advance to be armed in our mentality about deep and difficult troubles. You will suffer. You will go through, not around, distress and tribulation as you come to the end. We would be warned in advance about these things. We would be prepared and equipped not only about troubles of you know, these grand kinds, we would also be particularly armed and prepared against false teaching and false teachers. And we would cling to God's word carefully and say, I can't allow some dazzling figure or some charismatic figure, or someone who is so intense with their you know, new revelations, I can't allow them to put me off of the truth of God's word. I will not allow it. So Jesus goes out of his way to warn the believers that God, uh, you know, that God will preserve us against both the tumult and false teaching. And that's the, you know, sort of the, the deepest comfort of all, that God is in control and that his mercy towards the elect is not in doubt as the world is coming to its closing stage. God and his mercy is there for the elect in a time of great tumult. He will mercifully guard them from decep- deceptions that lead many astray. He will mercifully protect them against tumult and trouble that might have consumed them, if not for the power of God. So the last days are trying, but not the ruin of God's elect. And the return of Jesus, finally, maybe as another great comfort, the return of Jesus is taken for granted as coming and soon and coming with power and glory recognizable by all. We take that as an encouragement, not as, not as a, a moment of, of fear. Believing this teaching is a warning to those who live in spiritual apathy. People who believe, as Jesus taught and, and pictured in his ministry, people who believe that everything will just keep going the way it always has gone. 
That's no reliable attitude. The world is driving to this great day and the lightning bright coming of Jesus. The world is driving to the end point that God desires and not just spinning in meaninglessness. Our creator made us with direction and purpose and the end of things is near. Christ will return with the shining brightness that identifies him as God's Messiah, without a doubt, as God's King, without a doubt, as the judge, without a doubt. But he is the salvation for all who repent and believe in him. Believing his teaching makes God's people sober-minded, full of expectation for what God is doing in the world. No believer can hear this and be lazy. No believer can hear this and be complacent and float through their Christian life. No believer can hear this and just turn away without action. Jesus reminds us that we will face cross-bearing challenges and real opposition and deep tribulation. And yet we can still trust the fatherly care of our God. Let the wise person know the signs of the times. Let the wise person know that we are in the last days. And let the wise person cling to Jesus and his warnings and his revelation and endure through the power of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, hear our prayer that as we appeal to you, you would make whatever is uncertain, whatever is unclear, whatever is shrouded in mystery, that you would hold as... Um, mysteries in your hand and that you would give us, Lord, comfort, that you would give us confidence, that you would give us a conviction that more than we are entitled to know the day and the hour, uh, the times and the seasons of every specific thing that you will do, more than we need to know or are entitled to know. We trust in your love towards the elect. We trust in the truth of Jesus and the unbreakable and enduring foundation that we have in him. That his coming for us is, is an encouragement. That his victory is our victory. That his righteousness and his judgment are totally reliable. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speed urgently the day of his coming. And we pray, Lord, that we would be prepared with humility, prepared and armed, willing to suffer for the truth, and that we ourselves would trust in his swift arrival as defining this time of, of tumult and difficulty. Hear our prayer, Lord, Give us confidence in Jesus above all. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's sing number 390. Number 390.